There's a line in that hymn, in the fourth stanza, after it says, the trumps shall resound, the Lord shall descend, or previous to that, it says that the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. Now, one thing about good hymns, good hymns are soaked in Scripture. One of the texts in which this description is found is our text for today. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, beginning verse 12. Before I read this text, remember the context. John was given a vision of a great throne room. And one sat upon the throne and he had fearsome creatures surrounding him and elders on 24 thrones worshiping him. And in the right hand of this one who sat upon the throne is a scroll. And the call goes out to all of the universe who is worthy to open this scroll and to loose its seals. And there is no one found in all of creation worthy. And so John weeps because he's recognizing this scroll represents the sovereign purposes and decrees of God. And if one is not found who can, who can loose these seals, then the purposes of God will not be fulfilled. And he is told, do not weep because the lamb is worthy. And there we see the picture of Christ as a lamb slain and he ascends to the throne and he takes that scroll out of the hand of the father who sits upon that throne and he begins to loose those seals and the purposes of God are carried out in this world. As he unlooses these seals, all types of chaos and conflict results. We've seen Throughout, And we continue to see throughout the book of Revelation a main theme surfacing again and again. That God is sovereign. Although we look around us at this world and we see chaos and confusion and death and sin and terror and torment. That things ultimately are not as they seem because God is sovereign. He is in control. Because who is loosing these seals and unleashing these things upon the earth? It is the Lamb. It is Christ. And it says it over and over again. When in, in chapter 6, verse 1, I saw the Lamb opened one of the seals. And I heard, come and see. And there was one on a white horse who went forth conquering and to conquer. And then verse 3, when he, the Lamb, opened the second seal, I heard this voice, and then it was granted to the one who sat on this horse, fiery red, to take peace from the earth. When he, verse 5, opened the third seal, and then scarcity comes upon the earth. When he opened the fourth seal, the Lamb opening this seal, death comes upon the earth. The picture here, God is sovereign. For God's people, it's an encouragement. God has not lost control. When we look around us and we see 
armed gunmen going into churches and slaying multiple people. We do not look at that and say, where is God now? Where is God? You see, God is sovereign. And God says to his people, things are not as they seem. And he says, just wait. And he says, overcome, be faithful to me unto death and you will be rewarded with everlasting life. I've I've told this story before. I go into the jail and I minister there at the jail. One of my Bible studies, right away in this study, a young man, one of the six or seven men locked in this cell with me, says, I just want you to let, let you know right up front, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist. I said, okay, I appreciate your honesty. Let's talk. And as I began to reason with him from the scriptures, explain to him why I believe in God, there's another man in this cell who has been raging against God. He believes that the reason he's there is because the whole system is against him. Everyone hates him. He rages against God. He is blaspheming the name of God. And there he is sitting and listening as I reason with this atheist. And as I'm reasoning with this atheist and we're talking about hardship that comes in this world, I'm mentioning something that I'd heard which had struck me the preaching of the word at the youth camp, and that is many people believe promises that God has never made. And they believe those promises, and then they pray and they ask God for those things, and then God does not provide that, and they lose their faith in God because God didn't answer my prayer. But it's because they believed a lie, they didn't believe a promise that God had made. One of those promises is physical comfort, health, wealth, and prosperity. God doesn't promise us those things. And as I'm outlining this with this atheist, the atheist said, oh, so you're you're saying here that God doesn't want any uncommitted followers. And I'm thinking, preach it. (laughs) There's a guy over here that's listening that needs to hear this. Preach it. You know, And what this atheist, what was dawning on him was this. If if God's just this Santa Claus in the sky giving giving everybody everything that they want all the time, how does he know that people are really committed to him? How does he know that people are really following him for who he is and for the right reasons and not just for the goodies? You see, this atheist was recognizing that concept. I don't know if he was repenting of sin, but he was recognizing that concept. That needed to be recognized. The book of Revelation shows us this. God wants us to be faithful even unto death. The cry of the martyrs. And God says here. And see God's sovereignty in this. In verse 11. A white robe was given to each of them. It was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. Until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren. Who would be killed as they were was completed. God has an exact number of martyrs who will die for the word and for the testimony. And he will not ultimately pour out his wrath upon the wicked until that number is completed. It's a messed up world, but it doesn't mean God has lost control. He's just on a different time frame than we are. 
And he's saying, just wait, just wait, just wait. What are we to do? We're to live for eternity, not for now. You want people to be spoiled, rotten brats? Then give them everything they want at an early age. And they will grow up feeling entitled. And God doesn't want any entitled children. We have been given grace. It's a gift of God. And he says, be faithful to me and just wait. The reward is coming. Well, as we get to our text now, and where we see this phrase from the hymn that we have sung, I begin reading with verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal. Who the lamb opened the sixth seal? And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. And I'm going to warn you today, it's not going to be a warm and fuzzy message. This passage describes the great and final day of the Lord in which he pours wrath out upon his enemies. As we've worked our way through the book of Revelation to this point, I'm not going to have the time to preach all of this over for us again, but we're approaching the book of Revelation from the perspective of seeing parallel sections in the book. Sections or segments which recount much of the same time in history, oftentimes, from a slightly different vantage point. And so, I think a proper way to order this book is to see chapters 1 through 4 as a segment, and then chapters 4 through 7 we're looking at as another segment. One of the things that, it, that is seen here is there's this recapitulation, there's this restatement of some of these themes And one of the themes is judgment and the judgment of God. I propose as we look at this segment that this is speaking about the final day of the Lord. When Christ returns, he will judge the world. And one of the reasons I believe that this is speaking about the final judgment after the bodily return of Christ is the terminology that's used in the passage itself. Notice it says here, For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? We're going to consider in a moment this biblical teaching about the day of the Lord. But suffice it to say at this point, it says the great day of his wrath has come. Not a smaller judgment that will come before the final day. This says the great day of his wrath has come. And so, as you look at these parallel segments in Revelation, most of these segments conclude with 
a depiction of the final judgment and some of them, the the state of the righteous to come. So in this one, chapter 6, refers to that final judgment. If you look over to the end of the next segment, so the next segment is chapter 8 through 11. At the end of chapter 11, we see another picture of final judgment. So what I believe Revelation is doing here is it's giving us snapshots of oftentimes events that happen throughout this age and then culminate in the final judgment. And it gives those from a slightly different vantage point sometimes. Some of you may have seen the movie called Vantage Point in which there was a a terrorist bombing. And in that movie, it shows the same period of time over and over again, but from a different perspective. So it'll show it from the perspective of, you know, uh, one secret service agent. And then it'll show it from the perspective of a bystander. It'll show it from the perspective of the terrorist who planted it. And it it rewinds you back to the beginning. It shows you a different perspective. Revelation is doing that throughout. It's giving you a different vantage point. And it's recapitulating some of the same events, but oftentimes giving more details or different details. One of the reasons I, I think this is this evidence of declarations about the final judgment. Notice I said in chapter 6 at the end of that segment, it speaks about the great day of God's wrath. Here in chapter 11, beginning with verse 15, the seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then the 24 elders fall down and worship him. And and they say, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. Notice the time has come for the resurrection and rewards of eternal life. When does that happen? That happens after the bodily return of Jesus Christ. So this is a glimpse of those end events. The next segment here in chapter 12 goes back then to the very beginning, if you will, of Christ's birth. And it describes Christ being born. You see how these are going back and forward, back and forward, and they're encapsulated. At the end of this, through 14, the end of this segment you see another picture of the final judgment. Revelation 14, beginning with verse 14. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat in the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, gives the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And he explains that parable to his disciples and says, at the end of the age, the harvesters, who are the angels, will go out and they will gather the people in. And then the judgment will take place. You see, parallels this. This is a reference again to the final gathering in, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment. 
And thus it continues. We won't work our way through each one of these segments, but you see the point. So, Revelation chapter 6, beginning of verse 12, when the sixth seal is loosed, is describing the great and final day of the Lord. In this text, there is cosmological chaos. The entire universe is shaken. There is anthropological chaos. Mankind is shaken. And there's a theophany of wrath, an appearance of God and of the Lamb in wrath. And they're the ones doing the shaking. There are three faces in this text. The face of the universe is represented in the sun and the moon and the stars and the face of the earth shaken by an earthquake. The faces of sinful mankind are in this text and then the face of God. The face of God. This is describing the day of the Lord. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary speaks of this concept of the day of the Lord. It says it's an expression used by the Old Testament prophets as early in, as in the book of Amos to signify a time in which God actively intervenes in history primarily for judgment. They continue, thus the day of the Lord is also called the day of the Lord's anger in Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 2. They say sometimes the day of the Lord is used in the Old Testament to speak of a past judgment, such as in the book of Lamentations, chapter 2 and verse 22, which was describing the siege of the temple in Jerusalem. More often, an impending future judgment is in view, such as in the book of Joel. If you've read through the book of Joel in the Old Testament, the theme of the book is the day of the Lord. There is a locust plague that has come upon the people And that is described, and then there's a transition to God bringing judgment, which will consume the land like the locusts or grasshoppers, which have gone through and eaten every living thing within the land. They continue, ultimately, though, the term refers to climactic future judgment of the world. Often prophecy of a near future event and an end time prophecy are merged. The immediate judgment being a preview of the final day of the Lord. The prophecy of Isaiah against Babylon is an example. The final day of the Lord characterized in our text is pictured as a day of gloom, darkness, and judgment. Associated with God's judgment is language depicting changes in nature, such as a darkening of the sun, moon, and stars. Nations will be judged for their rebellion against God's anointed people and God's king, the Messiah. Notice here the cosmological chaos, the cosmic disturbances, the face of the earth and the sun and the moon and stars. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, verse 12, and behold, There was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. What happens in earthquake? The earth is shaken. 
The sun is darkened. The moon became like blood, blood red. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. I've never seen a fig tree shaken, but I've been under a walnut tree when a big wind blows over. And had those like little missiles dropping all around me. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. Did you sing that? The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. It's hard to even envision that, but it's kind of the idea of, if you've ever seen a, a, a scroll, a paper um, scroll, it is, you can unroll it and it's, it's large and unrolled. So you look up at the sky right now and you, you can see it stretching from horizon to horizon. What happens when you roll up a scroll? It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It almost be looking up at the sky and, and it's turning black or dark and it's rolling up and it's getting smaller and smaller. The sky above you is shrinking. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. I mean, can you, can you hear this? Can you feel it? Massive cosmological signs. Now, we've got to pause for just a minute. We have to ask ourselves, is this speaking about literally that all of these things are going to take place? One of the keys to interpreting the book of Revelation is to recognize that many, many, many of the images and figures of speech we see in this book have a precedent already in the Old Testament. We've already seen them in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, they have a context which helps us to interpret them. In a minute, we're going to look at multiple Old Testament texts which indicate, I think, that this is not speaking literally about the the stars falling from the heavens or the moon turning to, to literal blood or the sun literally being darkened. But these are signs. These are figures of speech. They're figures of speech. Now, one, one thing that I've already pointed out, and I, I would like to point out again, I uh, pointed out in a different message. Notice it says here that the stars of heaven fell to the earth. What would happen literally if every star up there fell on the earth? I mean, most of these stars are massively bigger than the earth. One star and the earth is gone. Right? Okay, so we're talking about every star in the heaven falling to the earth. This is figurative language. Furthermore, some who would look at this and say, no, this is literally speaking, and the book of Revelation is chronologically outlining what is going to take place. Um, You're going to have to deal with chapter 9 then. Oh, Chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, when it says the fourth angel sounded in verse 12, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them were darkened. Now, wait a minute. Didn't they already all fall to the earth? How can a third of them be darkened, you know, if they've already fallen to the earth? You see, it's another segment and it's describing similar things, but it's figurative language. And it's not chronologically advancing. Okay? Does that make sense? 
How do we understand that this is figurative language? Why would I say that? Shouldn't we just read it and say, okay, all these stars are going to fall and the earth's going to, you know, all these things are going to happen. As I mentioned, we have many instances in the Old Testament of this type of language, cosmological signs, such as great earthquakes being a sign of the end. Look at Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38. As you're turning there, I'm I'm going to point out again, as I have in the past, a lot of times what happens is people look around them at the world today, and anytime there's an earthquake or there's a war, they'll say, see, that's evidence that Jesus' return must be at hand. Well, we looked at Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus says expressly and specifically when those things happen, earthquakes and whatnot, and he's talking literally there, not figuratively, but literally, he says, don't be discouraged because the end is not yet. The signs given there in Matthew chapter 24, the literal earthquakes and whatnot, are specifically given to show God's people that the end is not yet at hand. But these figurative descriptions in Revelation are figurative of the end, but they represent something, and we're going to mention in just a moment what they represent. But first of all, there's precedent in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 38, 19 and 20. So that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother, and I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. Now consider for a moment Isaiah chapter 13. And here we see the imagery of the sun and moon being darkened. Isaiah chapter 13. And if you understand the context of Isaiah 13, God is pronouncing judgment on a nation, the nation of Babylon. Now stop and think for a moment. Has Babylon already been judged or are they waiting to be judged? Babylon, the literal nation, has already been judged and it's gone. So this is describing something that has already taken place. And it took place on the earth when that nation was judged. Because we see in 13.1 the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And then notice some of the description here. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes. Now, as we remember that concept of the day of the Lord, God coming in judgment, there have been many days of the Lord throughout history. One such day is being described here when God came and judged the nation of Babylon. Now, this was a prophecy that had not taken place at the time Isaiah is writing, but it would take place in the near future. And all of these days of the Lord are reflective of the great 
day of God's wrath that we're seeing in Revelation, which will be the final day of God's wrath when Christ returns. But how is this, how is this day described? And this remembers a day that already happened when the nation of Babylon was judged. They come from a far country, verse 5, the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Verse 6, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. Now verse 10, notice this. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. See? Cosmological signs. Those are figurative. You know what they're figurative of? A couple different things. One, in Genesis... When the heavenly bodies were created, the sun, moon, and stars, it says they were created for signs and seasons. And there have been many people throughout history who have looked to, for instance, the phases of the moon in order to keep track of time. The Jews had a lunar calendar. God established those for for evidence of the signs and the seasons. The darkening of those as depicted in these scriptures, is symbolic of signs or of seasons coming to an end. The season of the dynasty of Babylon was to end. And so the moon became dark. Furthermore, it's a sign or an evidence that when God moves in wrath and in judgment, The very sun and moon and stars look away. They turn dark or they turn red as blood or they fall from the sky. They cannot stand to look on the wrath of God poured out. The very faces of the celestial bodies are darkened. And it's symbolic. It's symbolic language. In these instances. God is not a God to be trifled with. When the the very things that we look at in the sky as constants. The sun shining there in the sky. It's a constant. There it is. It's going to come up. It's going to shine. No matter whether I put on glasses or close my eyes. Or go in a, a, a house with no windows or doors. Or whether they're clouds, the sun is there and it shines. Are depicted as turning dark and looking away when God's wrath is poured out. Symbolic. The wrath of God being poured out. The scriptures use this terminology in one place in the Psalms. It mentions that when the Lord came, it says when the Lord comes in his fierce anger, that the earth and all of these things will flee from him. They will fly away in the day of his wrath and anger. 
Symbolic of God's wrath being poured out. Symbolic of dynasties coming to an end. So there's cosmological chaos that takes place. The face of the earth is shaken. The face of the sun, moon, and stars changed. And then, notice back in our text in Revelation, the anthropological chaos, or the chaos amongst Mankind, and in particular, wicked people, not the Lord's people, but wicked people who have rejected Christ. And what takes place at the end? In verse 15, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Have you ever been afraid? No, I mean, have you ever been afraid? Have you ever been so afraid that you wished the ground would open up and swallow you and crush you underneath to hide you from the terror of what you're facing? That's what's being described here. It's described as God coming in his wrath and wicked people being so terrified that they wish that the very mountains around them would fall and crush them underneath rather than have to look into the face of God. Any church, any denomination, any religion, any teaching comprehensively from the Bible that does not proclaim the wrath of the Almighty God and that those who spit in God's face day in and day out and shake their grasshopper fists in His face will face His wrath and will be tormented and will be condemned and will one day be so terrified that they are puddling on the ground in their terror in the face of God is a false, erroneous, distorted, and inaccurate portrayal of the whole character and nature of God. God is a God of love that is deeper than the mightiest and deepest ocean, that is vaster than the sea. We can't even imagine how great the love of God is. We cannot grasp 
The depth of his love that he would reach out and send his own son to die a horrific, torturous death so that we might be brought in and be granted life. But the reality is that because God is such a God of love that he must conversely be a God of wrath. Those who love the deepest will be the fiercest in their anger. Always. The deeper one loves, the fiercer the anger. Think about it. If one loves justice, deeply, deeply loves justice, the deeper you love justice, the more you will be incensed and angry at injustice. The more one loves a human being in this life, the deeper the emotion and the, the anger when someone senselessly, senselessly abuses and tortures that life, right? We, we recognize as human beings, we recognize that we have this innate, innate within us built-in sense of justice. And we, when we hear about Wicked people rising up and torturing and killing and slaying the innocent. Something builds up within us and it says that is unjust. It is not right. That must be punished. Would we, would we for a second reserve that right for ourselves to desire justice and deny it to God? <laughs> Would we for a second think that we can have a deeper sense of justice than God? The judge of all the universe who will do rightly? You see, the reality is because God loves so deeply, he hates magnificently. For us as children of God, the more that we love God, the more we will hate our sin. Right? The more we will despise it, we will hate it, it will be filth to us, we'll spit it out. It leaves a nasty taste in our bellies, in our mouths, right? God is fierce in his wrath. He loves fiercely and he hates fiercely. And on that day, all those who have rejected him will face his unmitigated wrath. He is patient now with the wicked. He is long-suffering. He has sent forth the gospel, the general call for people to be reconciled to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a day appointed in which Christ will come and all of the wrath of God, which is like the water piling up behind the dam, will burst and it will crash down. And all those who have not bowed the knee to King Jesus and trusted in him and loved him and demonstrated that love by obedience to him will be crushed under the full wrath of God. 
How many of you would even like to be standing at the base of the Bull Shoals Dam and that thing break? We might be in trouble right here, right? I don't know how it all flows. I'm not good at geography and all that, but think about God and his great love for his people, his love of justice, every injustice that ever occurs, God's fiercely angry. And he says in Romans chapter 2 that wrath is being stored up against the ungodly. And one day, that dam will break and the damnation of God will come upon the wicked. We, we dare not, we dare not trifle with God. We dare not downplay his holiness and his justice. As C.S. Lewis put it in the Chronicles of Narnia, in a pictorial sense, he's not a tame lion. Oh, God is good. But he's not tame. If our idea of God is just the idea of one of the good old boys or Santa Claus in the sky, we're not reading the Bible. Our view is not based in truth. God's going to pour out wrath. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Excuse me. Chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, beginning verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day, the great day of his wrath, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Jesus is going to come in flaming fire and take vengeance in that great day. This is depicted elsewhere in Revelation. If you look to see the chapter I'm looking for. If you look to chapter 19, another depiction of this judgment. This great day mentioned 
in 2 Thessalonians 1. Now I saw heaven open in verse 11, Revelation 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. He who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Christ. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written which no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That's figurative, right? Yeah. It's the imagery of him coming in, in justice and vengeance with the sword. So there are things here depicted, obviously, that there is one aspect of it which is literal, and then there are figurative things to describe what's literally going to happen. Is Jesus literally going to come to the earth and wreak vengeance upon the enemies of God? Yes. But some of these pictures here in Revelation are descriptive, like the sword coming out of his mouth, or even describing him as a lamb. Does Jesus really look like a lamb with its throat cut? No. We know what he looks like. He rose from the dead in his resurrected body. His disciples could recognize him. That's what he looks like now. And he'll come back looking like that. But notice this. That it should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. What happens in a wine press. Grapes are placed inside this trough or bowl like press, and people would take off their shoes and they would go in and they would stamp those grapes. And those grapes would pop, and the, the blood red juice of those grapes would siphon out through holes in that press. The depiction here is of Christ coming and trampling underfoot and crushing the enemies of God. All those who have not bowed the knee to King Jesus and placed their faith in Christ will face the wrath of God. And in that day, they will not say, yeah, I'm going to hell and I'm going to party it up. Have you, there are people out there who will say, yeah, I think I'm going to hell. And it's going to be fine. They don't have a clue. There are people who say it's hot as hell outside. They don't have a clue about hell. What does our text say? It doesn't matter whether someone is a commander of men. It doesn't matter if they're mighty amongst men. It doesn't matter if they're a freeborn man. It doesn't matter if they're a slave. It doesn't matter who they are. When that day comes and they see the face of God burning in wrath, they will cower in such terror that they wish that they could die. 
but they'll not be able to die. They're going to be given a body that can never die and they're going to face the wrath and justice of God unmitigated for all eternity. You, you, you realize why we condemn speaking lightly of hell. Do you realize why it's a bad word to speak lightly of hell? It's because hell in its essence is facing the wrath of God. And it is something so sobering, not one of us in here today, not I who stand and preach this, can fully grasp this. It says in our text that these, the wicked cry out and they say, And the mountains and hills fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The imagery there there is mind-blowing. The wrath of the Lamb. Have you ever had a lamb be wrathful at you? (laughs) You You're you're thinking, there's a little lamb, you know? Well, it doesn't sound like something to fear when it's the little lamb, Right? Revelation is is glorious in the mixing of its metaphors, how it can mix these things together. You know, this is almost, you know, if you take it at face value, it almost sounds like the wrath of the Chihuahua or something like that. You know, and you're like, well, I don't know. I, I don't fear that very much. But when you recognize, hear the connection, what does it say in Revelation over and over again from the point that the Lamb, Jesus, ascends and takes the scroll out of the hand of the one who sits on the throne Over and over again, you see the name of God, the one on the throne, paired with the Lamb. So to say, the wrath of the God, of God and the Lamb. That they will face God and the Lamb. That God and the Lamb will do this. You see, what is it doing? It's connecting. Because we know God the Son is divine. He is God. He is the second person of the Godhead. And he is the agent of God will be coming, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and wreaking vengeance, carrying out this vengeance as the captain of the armies of God. And so it's a fearful thing to think about facing the wrath of the Lamb. Notice it mentions the face of God. Face of God is a term used to refer in the scriptures to the very character of God, especially his favor towards his people or turning away his favor. For God to turn his face to his people is to offer them his grace and help. You know that benediction in the book of Numbers, Lord, make your face to shine upon us. Have you ever prayed or thought to yourself, Lord, I want to seek your face? What, what does that mean? Are you going to go on a little quest to find the face of God somewhere? Is his picture posted somewhere? What, what's that? It's referring to seeking his favor, seeking his blessing.
The scriptures also talk about God turning his face against people or away from people. That means his favor or blessing is turned against them, is turned away from them. He is not looking at them with favor. Notice this, it says, hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and of the lamb. Psalm 34 and verse 16 says, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. 1 Peter 3 verse 12 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. My friends, you do not want to look into that face of God on that day. It doesn't matter who you are and how strong you think you are or how intelligent you think you are. On that day, if his face is a face with burning eyes of fire directed toward you, you will cower in terror. No one will be able to stand on that day. As we, as we think about this, if you had not fled to God to be saved from this wrath, you will flee from him in terror and face his wrath. There is nowhere you can run and hide. We have examples in the scripture, right? Jonah tried to get away from God. <laughs> God came and got him. Where are you going to go? God inhabits the entire universe. Where are you going to go? You cannot flee from him. You must flee toward him. Some people might say, I cannot love a God of wrath. then the only option for you is that you will face the wrath of the God of love. We have to deal in the realm of reality. This is who God is. And we should not wish him to be otherwise. To do so is to blaspheme his character and name. But think about this, my friends. On the day that Jesus died on the cross, the sun literally hid its face. What was going on when the sun grew dark, when Christ was on the cross? He could not stand to look upon the cross. Why? 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 What was happening on that cross? The wrath of God was being poured out on the Son of God. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
So there Jesus is on the cross and the sun goes dark because it cannot stand to gaze upon the wrath of God poured out on the sun. On that day, God turned his face of favor away from his son, not because of his son's sin. Christ never sinned, but because at that point, the full justice of God and his anger against all of the sins of God's chosen ones was being poured out on Jesus. God turned his face of favor away from his son. And turned his face of wrath on all of the sins of God's elect that the son was bearing on that cross. And then when Christ paid the price. When it was finished, wrath was satisfied. The father shone his face upon the son. My friends. Our only hope. In the day of the Lord, the great day of his wrath is that for it is for God to look upon us and to look in our faces and see the face of his son. That is our hope. <laughs> because God will no more reject his people who have the righteousness of Christ than he will spurn and reject his beloved son. And thus we must stand, not clothed in our righteousness. Not trying to do our piddly good works to earn our favor with God and build a ladder to heaven. We fall so desperately short. We have so many marks against us. We're born with a sin nature. We're born with the guilt of Adam counted as ours. We sin from the womb and deserve the wrath and damnation of God. And we can never pay that debt off. And that's why the son of God had to come. <laughs> he had to come as the perfect one. He is the only perfect one. And the gift of God. When we have faith in Christ. Is eternal life. By grace you are saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man can boast. And so if we stand clothed in the righteousness of God, and this is glorious, I can't, I can't even begin to express in words or with my emotions how beautiful and glorious this is. But if we, by faith, have placed our trust in God and have bowed the knee to King Jesus and demonstrated that we truly love him by our lives, being lives of repentance and following in righteousness for the glory of God, if that be the case, not only do we not have to fear this day, we can look forward to this day with rejoicing. What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we will sing and shout the victory. You see, there's, a, there's another concept, this day of the Lord, as proclaimed in the Old Testament, and as we see here in Revelation, this day of wrath and the vengeance of God poured out on his enemies. In the New Testament, especially the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaks of the day of Christ. And the day of Christ, the same day, but from the perspective of those who have the righteousness of Christ, is a day of joy and rejoicing and glory. <laughs> and it says here in, in 1 John, 
book of 1 John. Rick won't be getting to this for a while, so I'll steal his thunder. Beginning with verse 12 of chapter 4, 1 John 4, 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him. Because he first loved us. Now this verse, perfect love casts out fear. Fear of what? In the context. Fear of the judgment of God on the day of God's wrath. And it says here that if we are abiding in Christ through faith in him, the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, Knowing God's love that he has poured out on us so that we don't have to face that wrath. That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Confidence. Joy. Do you, do you fear today? Do you, if you're not covered in the righteousness of the Son of God then you should be afraid. But if you are saved, you should not fear that day. Where are you at? Where are you at? Don't have time to preach a whole series of messages on assurance of salvation and all those good things, but if you want to talk if you want to talk about where you're at today. Brother Rick and I would love to talk to you. If, you, if you're in a place of saying, I, I fear that day. I fear that day. Don't, don't go out of here and go out and get a pizza or play golf or watch TV or something like that and just let that Fear be zapped, sapped from you and just sweep it under the rug. No, you need to come to a place where that fear is driven out. Your souls are at stake. God's not to be trifled with. But oh, he's a merciful God. His love and mercy is extended toward us today. But there will be a day coming when all 
choices will be actualized and that love and mercy will be extended no more to those who have refused to accept. Let's pray. Father, this is a, such a, a glorious and sobering and deep reality. I, we, we have a hard time even fathoming this, but I pray that you'll help us by the power of your Holy Spirit and pray that you would apply this to our hearts and lives in whatever way is needed to us. We ask that you would uh, bless the time of fellowship we have together, the meal that we share together. May you be honored and glorified in it. May you teach us this day. May we not leave here unchanged. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's in the other?